On this episode of Blue 58, we have a boatload of listener questions. We'll dive deep on edge rushers, running backs, and how to keep opposing fans out of Lambeau Field. Then Mike McCarthy may not be your favorite coach, but I think you should cut him a bit of a break. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Muirdake, episode number 104, and what an episode it will be. Typically, when I throw out the the call for questions on the podcast, we get one or two maybe, but we got a lot this episode, and as a result, we're going to be able to spend most of our time answering your questions, and a good selection of questions we have today. But before we get to that, I want to introduce what I think may be a recurring character for the remainder of the season. We don't have theme music for him yet, uh, but he is a superhero, and every superhero does deserve a good theme. So if you can think of a theme... Let us know, and we'll throw it under these segments when we do them in the future. I'm calling him Captain Two Thoughts, because I think it is a cry and shame that nobody in NFL media seems to be able to hold two thoughts in their tiny little heads at the same time. What I'm talking about is this. Uh, There are a number of takes floating around the internet, both related apparently this week to Devontae Adams uh, and the alleged Rodgers rule. That came into play late in the Packers-Vikings game on Sunday. And it appears you can only have one of these two opinions. When we're talking about Devontae Adams, more than one person has written that the Packers really needed more from Devontae Adams on Sunday. And they've used two specific plays to illustrate that. Uh, And they both were the the two throws to the end zone after the Ha Ha Clinton Dix pick in the fourth quarter. One was a very tough catch between a couple defenders where the ball kind of got knocked away from uh, from Adams while he was on the ground in the process of making a catch, one that probably should have been reviewed but wasn't. The other one was the one where he was probably interfered with. And more than one person I have read has said that this is, this is an example of Devontae Adams leaving something out there on the field. The most egregious example of this is Eric Baranchek from PackersNews.com. He writes, To win big games in the NFL, you need your best players to make plays. And Sunday, the Packers' best receiver had a chance for two tough touchdown catches in the final two minutes, either of which would have sealed the game. And both times, he failed to come up with the ball. On the first, Aaron Rodgers made a good throw to his right that Devontae Adams had in his hands, but linebacker Eric Kendricks stripped out as they went to the ground. On the second, Rodgers made a good back shoulder throw that bounced off Adams' forearms after he'd been hand-fighting with the cornerback. Xavier Rhodes' coverage was tight, but he never touched the ball. Neither was an easy catch for Adams, but they were the kind teams need from their best receiver to win a game against what figures to be one of the NFC's top Super Bowl contenders. And I see what Baranchek and everybody else is writing, but is it possible that two things could be true here? It's okay, I think, to point out that Devontae Adams had a legit shot at those catches, but also, there were very legitimate, passable reasons why he, why anybody wouldn't come up with those passes. Randy Moss in his prime may not have caught either of those passes. The first one, because he was going to the ground already, he would have had to turn and roll on his back to catch the ball with another player essentially laying on top of him. If that ball comes out, so what? Like, that happens, okay? It may have been a catch anyway, depending on how it was called. If they had called it a touchdown, then gone to the review, it may not have been turned over. As it stood, they didn't have enough to to merit a, a replay review where they could even take another look at it. But if that play is called slightly differently, it may have been a touchdown to begin with. 
And if the officiating was any sort of consistent on Sunday, Adams should have gotten a flag on that second one. Why, if, if you're going to get mad at him for not catching that pass, why don't you get mad at Jimmy Graham for not coming up with the pass early in, in the game where he was obviously interfered with on the sideline and had somebody tugging at his arms? He's certainly one of the top receivers at his position in the NFL, or the Packers thought so when they signed him. Why don't you get mad at him for that? I don't understand why it just has to be Devontae Adams is bad and he didn't come up with this throw. But worse than that is the conversation around this so-called Rodgers rule. Um, Colin Cowherd is leading the charge on this. And if I could tolerate Colin Cowherd for more than one and a half seconds at a time, I'd actually play the audio here. But he went on and on today or yesterday about how Packers fans complaining about Clay Matthews' hit uh, need to stop because it was the hit on Rodgers last year that actually precipitated all of this stuff anyway, which is a load of bunk. Uh, and Captain Two Thoughts is going to save us here because there are two things that are possible to think about this play at the exact same time. You can think that it is a bad call that uh, that Clay Matthew was flagged for roughing the passer and also at the same time, think that the NFL needs to do more to protect its high-end quarterbacks. Those are two views that you can have at the same time. And this is a perfect example of being able to have those views at the same time because you know what? This wasn't even the added enforcement that led to the flag on Matthews. Tony Correnti said after the game, nope, this wasn't the added emphasis. Nope, this wasn't the helmet rule. Nope, this wasn't the body weight thing. This was just your standard run-of-the-mill, roughing the passer call. That's how we called it on the field. It's possible to think that Matthews got flagged inappropriately and still want all of those new things, flawed as they may be, from the NFL. This was a bad call, and it's okay for Packers fans to say it was a bad call and still want their quarterback to be protected more. That's my rant on those things for this week, and maybe Captain Two Thoughts will come back at some point through the rest of this season. Let's move on to your questions, because as I said, there are quite a few of them, and they are all pretty good here this week. All very good, I think. Starting with Jared Hernandez. And I'm sorry if you wanted to submit a question or would have wanted to submit a question. We did this via Twitter. That's the easiest and quickest way to respond to us. Uh, And we just got a lot of quick responses there. So um, unfortunately, that's how it worked this time. Maybe we'll open this up a little bit more in the future. But for this particular episode, we went with Twitter questions. Jared Hernandez asks, can we truly trust Bryce all season? Control Bryce, the Packers safety. I think trust is an interesting word to use here because it sort of seems to get at this idea of being able to really rely on a player to do what they're supposed to do all the time. That's what trust is, right? Of course. So in that sense, no, I don't think we can trust Kentrell Bryce all season. And I think we saw why in week two. Kirk Cousins and the Vikings managed to victimize Bryce on two important touchdowns late in the game. You had the deep shot to to Stefan Diggs, where if Bryce does things a little bit differently, he may be able to get over and help Devon House. Then you had the play to Adam Thielen, the, the, the score that ultimately tied the game or the touchdown prior to the two-point conversion that tied the game, if we want to be really accurate here, where he took a really odd line to the ball and it looked like he was trying to maybe avoid Jair Alexander and ended up not doing anything at all. He didn't get the ball. He didn't get Thielen. He didn't get Alexander. He didn't get anything. He just went, kind of went flying off to the sideline. So 
from that perspective, I don't think you can trust Bryce because if you're trusting him to do the right thing every time, or at least even most of the times, it seems like that's going to be a problem. But that said, I think there's a related question here as to whether or not Kentrell Bryce is good enough to win with. And that cuts a little bit deeper into the issue of what the Packers are getting from their safeties here. I still think, no matter how good Bryce ends up being this season, that the Packers probably should have done more to upgrade their safety position this year. If you decide assigned a guy like Eric Reed for the veterans minimum or whatever, even a couple million, two to three million this year, and just figured out the safety group as you went along, you could still phase Kentrell Bryce in if he's the guy that you want for the future, or Josh Jones, or whomever. But I still think as a replacement for Morgan Burnett, Kentrell Bryce is probably good enough to win with, by and large, this year. He's not an upgrade for your safety position. He's probably just a guy who gives you pretty much the status quo from last year. Because as you'll remember, Morgan Burnett tailed off pretty good last year too. And he was aging and pretty beat up just because of the way that he plays. His issues, Bryce's, seem correctable to me. You can work on taking different lines to the ball, although it hasn't seemed to help haha Clinton Dix at all. You can improve your reads. You can get more used to playing in Mike Pettin's defense. And as you'll remember, he was Mike McCarthy's staff's top-graded player on defense in Week One. It's not like he can't be good. So is a guy that you is he a guy that you can trust to do everything correct and be a real leader on your defense? No, I don't think so. But he is a guy who can probably be a worthwhile contributor. Goot season asks, can they the Packers stay healthy? Well, this is going to be a disappointing answer, but uh, no. I don't think they can stay healthy, at least not as healthy as they have been so far. This, for the Packers, or really any NFL team, this is a pretty remarkable run of health, injury to Rodgers notwithstanding. They have one starter currently on injured reserve right now. That's, That's pretty good, considering they went through a month of training camp, four preseason games, and now two regular season games. For the Packers, that's that's pretty outstanding because over the past couple of years, they've not done super well on the injury front. Don't want to get into the strength and conditioning coach issue. That is a, a non-issue, um, as I've written pretty extensively about on the blog before. Look that up if you've got time. Maybe I'll include a link to that in the description of this podcast or on the, the, the blog post about this podcast. Boy, that was a lot of media in one sentence. But it, it's not a strength and conditioning issue. But the Packers strength and conditioning or not, have had a very good run of health to start the season. And I think to hope that that continues is a bit of a fool's hope because it's football. People get injured a lot. So the Packers are going to have to deal with injuries at some point. And maybe that big scare with Rodgers to start the season was their big scary injury of the year, and it'll be pretty good from that point on. But I wouldn't count on it. The questions going forward, I think, are twofold. First, where do the injuries happen? And second, how do the Packers respond? Depending and assuming you're going to have injuries, and I think that's a safe assumption, where they happen will have a bigger or smaller impact on the Packers. Rephrase that again. The impact those injuries have on the Packers will be bigger or smaller based on where they happen on their roster. So say, for example, you have an injury to a position group that's pretty shallow already. For instance, 
the right side of the offensive line. Say Brian Bulaga goes down for an extended period of time. It's Jason Spriggs and nobody else because Kyle Murphy is gone. Byron Bell showed that he can't play right tackle, and I don't think we want to go through another half season of Justin McRae there again. That's pretty thin. Say Justin McRae goes down. You put Byron Bell in there, but you super excited about that? I don't think so. This would be really where it would be great to have Cole Madison around, but that's an entirely different issue. So if the Packers have injuries there, I think they've got problems. However, let's say that Nick Perry or Clay Matthews goes down at some point this season, which seems like a pretty safe assumption because it happens pretty much every year. If one of them goes down, does it really affect the Packers all that much? I don't think so. The Packers haven't done a whole lot with their outside linebacker group throughout the season, throughout the offseason, throughout training camp. So if one of those guys goes down, how does that really hurt you, especially what we've seen with what we've seen from their outside linebacker group so far? I think it's possible that the Packers could still skate by depending on where those injuries come. Now, if you start getting tons and tons of injuries, well, that changes the equation, but we're not quite there yet. So, Let's wait and see on where the injuries inevitably pop up. The second part of this is how do the Packers respond when those injuries happen? I think it's pretty clear from what we've seen from Brian Gutekunst so far that he is going to be more aggressive in his responses to roster issues than Ted Thompson was during the later part of his tenure in Green Bay. If the Packers would have, say, an injury or two to their outside linebacker group, say Nick Perry and Clay Matthews are both going to be out for a couple weeks, it would be interesting, it will be interesting to see what Brian Gutekunst does to address that situation. Does he go outside the organization? Does he promote from the practice squad? How does he approach that? I think that'll be interesting to see because we are going to eventually have some issues with injuries this season. That just happens. It happens to everybody. Chris Brom asks, Garden center, very hot and cold. Hopefully interior offensive line play gets better every game. Not really a question, but I think we can kind of explore this a little bit. Um, I kind of think that the interior offensive line play is going to get better as the season goes on for a couple of reasons. First, cohesiveness. More time together is never a bad thing, especially on the offensive line. And I think the more that they play together, the better they will play overall. And by and large, outside of the start of a couple games, the offensive line, I think, has been pretty okay. Then you've got the issue of experience. This is somewhat related to cohesiveness, but, you know, it's a little, it's different enough to, to explore on its own. Justin McRae is in his first full season and is an NFL right guard. Figuring out what it takes to play by playing there a bunch never hurts. Just look back, I think, to Lane Taylor in 2016. Prior to that, Lane Taylor was an adventure at worst on the offensive line and a disaster. Well, an adventure at best, let's say, and a disaster at worst. You think back to how he played against the Saints during the 2015 season when he came in for his first extended play. He got housed. It was real bad. But at the start of 2016, he gets the job after the Packers cut Josh Sitton for reasons that are still not entirely clear. That was an odd, mishandled situation. But the net result was that they got Lane Taylor in there and he was as good as Sitton has been since then, pretty much. Not, he, he, I, don't, I want to clarify that. He's not as good as Sitton was prior to 2016, but 2016 to present, Taylor has been probably as good as Josh Sitton or you know close enough that you can get by. But my point is that prior to when he really started playing, he was not very good. And then once he started playing, 
consistently he got better and better to the point that at the end of the 2016 season he was probably playing as well as you really could have asked him to play. So I think the longer Justin McCray is out there, and he is the least experienced member of that offensive line right now, the better the offensive line gets. So it is concerning early on. I think Chris's point is well taken. Uh, Hot and cold is a good way to put it, but I think there's reason to think this is going to get better going forward. Our one email question comes from John in Sheboygan. What's the deal with Mercedes Lewis and Lance Kendricks? He didn't say it in so many words, but that's basically the the thrust of his question here. Uh, The snap counts through two games are a little bit puzzling for this situation at tight end. Lance Kendricks has gotten 46 snaps so far, which is, if my math checks out, more than double what Mercedes Lewis has gotten with his 21 snaps. This is odd to me. And I think when Mercedes Lewis came in, it was kind of presumed, or at least I presumed, that he was the new number two tight end and Lance Kendricks would just kind of get sprinkled in on occasion. In fact, the reverse has been true. Lance Kendricks, if the snap counts are any judge, is the number two tight end and they're just figuring out what what to do with Mercedes Lewis as they go on. I think this is somewhat due to the perception that Lance Kendricks is more versatile than Mercedes Lewis. I think that perception is mistaken because a lot of that perception comes from Kendricks' supposed role as this H-back, quasi-fullback type. And who cares if you've got an H-back or a a fullback who is also a tight end? Who cares? That that doesn't add anything to the Packers' offense. Kendricks certainly hasn't in that particular role. Maybe if the Packers had a guy like Trey Burton that Chicago has, things would be a little bit different. But Kendricks is not lighting the world on fire there. Lewis is probably a better receiver and is definitely a better blocker than Kendricks. So what gives? I don't understand it. I don't have a good answer to what's going on here, and I think they would be well-served to play Lewis more. And if you really want to get both of them on the field, what's wrong with a three-tight end set? If you're going to have five receivers in the formation or five pass catchers in the formation, why not have Lance Kendricks and Mercedes Lewis as your traditional tight end types, then split out Adams, Graham, and Cobb as receivers? As we hear from Tom Silverstein all the time, Jimmy Graham is basically a receiver anyway. Why not line them up as one and just do normal things with your other tight ends? That seems like a good solution to me if you're really trying to get Lewis and Kendricks on the field. But all in all, just very puzzling from the Packers so far. Anthony asks a very good question here. Anthony actually asked two questions, but we're going to combine one of his other questions into one that we'll do with edge rushers later on here. Um, He asks, how will Aaron Jones factor into the backfield now? Does Jamal Williams' pass pro still make him number one? In an ideal world, I think the Packers really wouldn't have a number one running back. They would just use both as the situation calls for it. And I think that the skill sets are different enough with Williams and Jones that you can justify using both of them together throughout the game. What we know about Mike McCarthy shows that probably won't happen. He's not real good at splitting up carries and playing time among his backs. To that point... Jamal Williams has gotten the ball a lot. 27% of the total offensive plays the Packers have run so far this season have gone to Jamal Williams, which is something I don't really understand. That is a combination of the carries he's got and the targets he's received in the passing game. That just seems somewhat absurd. Like he's a reliable, good, solid player, but giving him the ball that much just seems like a little bit unnecessary. 
So I'm not sure what you really end up doing with both of them together, but I think there are roles that are available for them. Here's what we know about the backs that the Packers have so far. Williams does get the ball a lot, but he is by far their best blocker and a tremendous blocker he is. And as a, as a runner, he's not spectacular, but he does get what, what's there, and he does not make very many mistakes. Ty Montgomery, meanwhile, he does good things when the Packers actually use him, which is not a whole lot, a disappointing amount, in fact. He's improved as a pass blocker, and he's probably a better runner than people give him credit for. Then you've got Aaron Jones, and I'm, I'm still not convinced the Packers are the best offense for Aaron Jones because, just because Mike McCarthy doesn't really seem to understand how to use backs that have a non-traditional skill set. And I say non-traditional using the definition of traditional that's really relevant only as of about 2007 to 2012 or so, the, the last seasons when you could really have a single running back doing all of your carries and, you know, just carrying the load for you on every offensive play. Just having one lead guy who does all your running back duties for you. I think that's what Mike McCarthy wants to do with his running backs, but in the modern NFL, you can't. So he's just kind of caught between these two eras of, of running back usage, and he can't figure out how to get into that second era, which is where the Packers really need to be. Jones is the perfect guy for that new era. He's really an Alvin Kamara type not probably quite as good as Alvin Kamara, but he tests athletically very similar to him and can do a lot of the things that Alvin Kamara does for the Saints. He's explosive, but I wonder if he's kind of like, I, I was trying to think of an analogy to, to succinctly say what Aaron Jones is. Have you, ever, have you ever seen these science fiction or superhero movies where there's this ultra top secret weapon and some random cannon fodder, usually enemy guy, finds this weapon and is like, oh, what's this? I'm going to use it. And he picks it up and ends up blowing himself up. Then the hero comes along and is like, ha ha, look at these smoking pair of boots that used to be this henchman of the, uh, you know, villainous enemy here. He picks up the weapon and, you know, shows the world what it does when it's really in, you know, the hands of somebody who knows how to use it. That's what Aaron Jones sometimes seems like in Mike McCarthy's hands, a, a weapon that he doesn't really know how to use. But there are good examples of what the Packers can actually do with him. Look at the Dallas game last year. Aaron Jones was phenomenal in that game, 19 carries for 100 and some yards, just ripping off, you know, 5, 10, 15 yard runs all the time, but also affecting the game in ways where he doesn't have to have the ball in his hands. Early in the fourth quarter, Jordy Nelson scored a touchdown coming out of the slot on a play on a play action play where Aaron Jones faked a run off right tackle and the entire defense was so concerned about Aaron Jones that they forgot about Jordy Nelson and he walks into the end zone wide open and Aaron or Aaron Rodgers finds him for an easy touchdown. That's what a guy like Aaron Jones can do for you and it was tantalizing because as it turned out that was the only real look we got of Aaron Rodgers and Aaron Jones together. So I'm hoping to see something like that when he gets back to full strength. And I think it's going to be a couple weeks here before he's really at full strength. But it'll be interesting to see how they use him when they do have an opportunity to use him. We've got a a trio of questions about quarterback or or about edge rushers here. So we're going to kind of pound through them really quick here. 
Matt Jaden asks, and I'm sorry, Matt, if I'm mispronouncing your last name, what info does Kyler Fackrell have to blackmail the coaches and front office? I don't know, but he sure seems to have nine lives, doesn't he? He's without a doubt one of the four best edge rushers the Packers had in training camp this year, but that says more about the edge rushing group than it does about Kyler Fackrell. And to that point, multiple readers asked, does Brian Gutekunst try to work out a deal for an edge rusher now or do something to improve the edge rusher group? And I don't want to be glib about this, but what is there to do? What is What are the options here that Brian Gutekunst could really take? If you were trying to sign somebody or trade for somebody who can really make a significant impact at this point, that ship has sailed. Uh, anybody who's out there now available for signing is not going to be the kind of game changer that the Packers really need to suddenly have a competent edge rusher group. We see the name John Simon all the time, but he's really not a, a pass rusher type. Uh, he's, he's just not. He's, he's probably a super poor man's Nick Perry setting the edge and doing his job against the run, you know, which is fine and probably an improvement over Kyler Fackrell, but he's really not going to be an answer for the outside linebacker group. As far as trades, well, we could offer the Bears a couple first-round picks for Khalil Mack now, but I don't think they're going to be super interested in that. So that that option is out. Uh, we've seen the name Shane Ray come up a bunch of times through the offseason. No, that's not really of super great interest to me, and I don't think the Packers either. He's not going to be a world changer. He's been injured so many times already. And beyond that, you just go farther and farther down the list, and you find guys with just more and more issues. So there aren't really any options. So to that end, I don't really expect Gutekunst and the Packers to really do anything here. You could try Kendall Donerson and see what happens, but he looked fine in the preseason. He's really going to change anything for your outside linebacker edge rusher group? I don't think so. And finally, Jeremy just ties it all together and asks, how do you even legally sack the quarterback? I don't know. Um, bring him a cup of coffee or, you know, maybe not a cup of coffee. You bring him a, a warm beverage and a blanket and a pillow and you talk softly to him and read him a story and you ask him how his day was and what his hopes and dreams are. And then you just gently pick him up and lay him to the ground and just hope that he doesn't wake up with the 70,000 scream, screaming fans around him. I think that's the, the best approach that you can you can look for there. Other than that, I, it's just so arbitrary. And I think this is worth talking about for a second, but I predicted a few weeks ago that how that I thought the NFL would sort of mitigate itself on this new added emphasis on quarterbacks. There would be um, a couple of weeks where things were really hairy and crazy and nobody really knew what, what, way, what way was up. But eventually, you know, they'd sort of sort things out and a few things would stop being called and eventually we'd get some sort of loose approximation where things were before with occasionally an, an extra flag on a hit to a quarterback. Well, we are certainly in the first phase of that, but based on the NFL response to the Clay Matthews hit from Sunday, I don't think this is ever going to even out. I don't think we're ever going to swing back the other way at all. And I would love to see that happen, but I, the NFL is really digging in here. And it's, it, I, I have a hard time seeing this getting any better. Packer Ranter, one of our great friends on the Twitter, asks, how do we strip season tickets from people that consistently sell their seats? I'm interested in this topic because I'm interested in actually solving this problem. This kind of springs up, I assume, from the preponderance of purple at the Packers game on Sunday. There was a lot of purple in the crowd. And 
I want to give the people who sell their season tickets or, or any tickets to out-of-town fans, particularly Vikings fans in this instance, um, a little bit of the benefit of the doubt because there is a tremendous incentive to sell. Just look how much money you can make selling tickets. I mean, one good game, you could easily pay for your tickets for the rest of the year. So I, I understand why they're doing at that. And if you look at StubHub right now, you'll see tickets on the 50-yard line that are going for almost 350 bucks a piece for the upcoming Packers home game against the 49ers. And the 49ers, I don't even know if they're good or not. They're certainly not a marquee opponent for the Packers, not a rivalry opponent like the Bears or the Vikings. But if you can get that much for the 49ers game, I can understand, or if you see tickets going for that much for the 49ers, I can understand wanting to get a piece of that for yourself because I would be tempted to do the same thing. So what do we do? Obviously, having Lambeau Field be for Packers fans only is the platonic ideal here. That's what we want. That's what we, we want to have only Packers fans inside Lambeau Field on Sunday. Let's say you can. Let's say you buy your season tickets, your eight home games and your two preseason games or whatever, and uh, the Packers make a rule that you can only resell so many of those tickets, only so many of those games. Okay. There are a couple issues with that. First, they might still end up selling their tickets for the Vikings game and the Bears game, and you have a lot of Bears and Vikings fans in Lambeau Field there. So not ideal there. Secondly, what if you just end up with more empty seats? and People just don't end up going to as many games because they can't resell their tickets, and you know it, it, things go from there. People just aren't buying as many tickets. That's a, that's a possible outcome. Okay, what if you made it so you you don't necessarily have to keep all of your tickets and attend the games, but you have to offer those tickets in a Packers-centric marketplace first. I don't know how you enforce that. I don't know how you set that up and, and what you end up doing to make it worth people's while. Because ultimately what you're going to end up having there is people who buy a bunch of tickets at face value, try to resell them, ended up having to sell at less than face value. Well, it's only a, a win for the people who buy cheap tickets. Which, you know, may be a win indeed because you got somebody going who would be uh, going instead of not going, using a ticket that otherwise wouldn't be used. But that doesn't seem like it's super fair to the people who, who are trying to sell their tickets. So I think the final solution, the best solution, as we want to rephrase that a little bit, is to give people more incentive to use their tickets. I think there are things about the game day experience at Lambeau Field that could be improved. Uh, concession prices are one thing off the top of my head, although concession prices aren't super bad at Lambeau Field compared to other places that I've been. Um, but that's one thing that you could do. Just make it, do whatever it takes to make people more likely to want to go to the game in the first place. Overcome that that lure of selling. You're going to have to do quite a bit to you know, overcome the lure of making a couple hundred quick bucks for one single ticket, but there are things that you could probably do there. You could also work out ways to give some additional perks to season ticket holders. Give them a discount uh, at the pro shop in, in stadium during game days. I don't know, something. Figure it out. Maybe that's where you do your cheaper concession prices. If you're a season ticket holder, you get this pass that says you can have 20% off concessions stadium-wide. Who knows? I don't know. There's got to be a solution there. And I think incentivizing stuff like this is something the Packers haven't necessarily done very well in the past, When especially with a thing like being a shareholder. Um, other than 
being able to say that you're a shareholder and getting some discounts on merchandise that isn't super great and going to the shareholders meeting, what incentive is there to be a shareholder? I understand that having it is part of the appeal there, but it'd be cool if the Packers did a little bit more um, for shareholders there. So maybe that's just because I am a shareholder. They were gifted to me, um, but uh, who knows? While I've got you here, I want to spend the last second of the of the show here talking about one specific question. We got this from a novelty named Twitter account, so I, I won't I won't use the name here. But the question was, how does Mike McCarthy have a coaching job in the NFL? I could see Pop Warner, but not even close to the professional level. Level Rogers is keeping him hired. A few thoughts here. And I understand the Mike McCarthy hate because he's a natural scapegoat for why the Packers haven't necessarily gotten back to the Super Bowl since 2010, although there were a few things that happened that weren't necessarily his fault. First, Mike McCarthy is probably not as bad as people think. Um, Just look at how the offense has worked when Aaron Rodgers has actually played according to the offense over the past couple weeks. It's, It's gone pretty well, and Mike McCarthy and Joe Feldman get some credit for that. Related to that is that Aaron Rodgers wouldn't be what he is today without Mike McCarthy. That is just a fact. Uh, it is a fact that a lot of people don't seem able to accept, but Aaron Rodgers would not be the quarterback that he is today without Mike McCarthy. He did so much to help Aaron Rodgers improve. It's it's not even funny. People have this idea based on probably about 2010 to the present of Aaron Rodgers coming into the league fully formed and the Packers wasted three years just sitting him behind Brett Favre. And if it was true that Aaron Rodgers was as good as he was in 2010, 2011, and so on, in 2005, 2006, 2007, the Packers made a mistake sitting him behind Brett Favre because they should have traded him the second that they drafted Aaron Rodgers for as much as they could possibly get and just gone from there. Because Favre was on the downswing in 2005 and 2006, had a better year in 2007. And you know the story from there. But Aaron Rodgers was not that quarterback yet. He just wasn't. He was bad at a lot of things. And it took some time behind Brett Favre and working with Mike McCarthy, working closely with Mike McCarthy for him to become the player that he is today. Second, I think there are parts of the game where you can legitimately criticize Mike McCarthy. And I think to use the cliche, you could even say the game has passed him by a little bit. We talked a little bit about personnel usage earlier with tight ends, with Aaron Jones, maybe just player deployment, some playing trends, the way that you scheme guys open and stuff like that. I think there are legitimate criticisms of Mike McCarthy. So I don't want to seem like I'm just defending Mike McCarthy because I have some vested interest in, in Mike McCarthy. There are many legitimate criticisms of him. I, I talk about his play management and clock management at the end of the game on Sunday. Those were big issues. They may have had a a role in costing the Packers a win there. But thirdly, I want to end with this. You may hate Mike McCarthy, and you may have reasons for just disliking him, but it could be so much worse, so much worse. Just look around the NFL today and look at the head coaches out there that have teams that are going absolutely nowhere. The Houston Texans have had a better defense than the Packers for close to a decade now. And they've got as exciting a young player in Deshaun Watson as any as any young quarterback in the league. Bill O'Brien running him into the ground. Uh, look at the Arizona Cardinals, a proud franchise in their own right, a storied franchise in their own right, who's got history in the NFL dating back who knows how far, right back to the very beginning. Couldn't you even name the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals? He is so uninspiring that you forget him the instant you learn who he is. 
If I told you whose name was Brett Johnson, would you be surprised? You might be, because that's not his actual name. It's Stephen Wilkes, the most forgettable person in the universe. Having a guy like that could be worse than having a guy like Mike McCarthy. And there's something to be said for continuity and sustained being pretty good in the NFL. Having a coach who's pretty good and having Aaron Rodgers takes you pretty far. And if a couple other things break Mike McCarthy's way, he might have two or three rings by now. There were some things in the playoffs that were outside of his control that cost the Packers wins, maybe even championships. And so when it comes to criticism of McCarthy, I would say, yes, again, there are reasons that you can be critical of him. But just remember, it could be worse. And a lot of the teams around the NFL have it quite a bit worse than the Packers. That's all I've got for you this week. I appreciate you sticking around and listening to this Ooh, a little bit longer than usual episode, but we had a lot of good questions, a lot of good stuff to talk about, and a couple of the episodes have been running a little bit short lately. If you would like to reach out with us, make contact, give us uh, your thoughts or questions for future mailbag-ish issues of The Power Sweep or episodes of The Power Sweep or Blue 58 or whatever this thing is called, reach out to us on Facebook or on Twitter by searching at The Power Sweep on either of those websites. Uh, search, or, or if you prefer to do it via email, uh, type the power sweep 1959 at gmail.com into your email provider of choice then pen your email and it will find its way to us however email actually works if you want to support the show the best way to do that is to donate on patreon one dollar a month helps, helps us keep the lights on here but you should also feel free to peruse our fine selection of t-shirts and sweatshirts and stickers and other products on teespring click the store link at thepowersweep.com to find your way there We do appreciate any sort of support that you give us, and the absolutely freest and easiest way to support us is by leaving a review on iTunes. No pressure to do that, but it does help more people find the show. We do appreciate any bit of feedback or thoughts that you give us because that all just helps us make this entire operation better and ultimately helps us all become Smarter Packers fans. And as I frequently say, Smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you Friday for a preview episode of Blue 58.